Welcome to a Drop Tent Media Production. The Porcupine with Adam Nutter. Yo, what's up, brother and sister bears? Porcupine, what's up? Adam Nutter, you know that. Follow me there, Adam Nutter on Twitter and all this stuff. Uh, September 10th, back at the pop-in, Chalfon, Pennsylvania. Get your tickets. They're on the, They're already selling. They're moving. Uh, droptent.com slash events. Uh, I have other stuff coming up, like locally and a little bit on the road. But the next other thing I kind of want to plug is uh, October 21st and 22nd, Orlando, Florida, Orlando Freedom Fest. Stand-up podcast live. It's going to be a fucking great time. Uh, so check that out. I, I think tickets will be available soon. So I'll put that all on droptent.com when that's all available. Um, go to the store, buy a porcupine shirt, droptent.com slash store. Get your porcupine shirts, fucking hats. I think we're making hats. Sleeveless shirts are coming out. And if you're a true Adam Nutter fan, you got to get a sleeveless porcupine shirt. So get those shirts. But enough of me. Uh, guys, I've been wanting this episode about Woodrow Wilson for a long time now. Um, he's a piece of shit and the worst president we've ever had. And uh, I was scouring for a good guest for a while and I couldn't find one that was like super knowledgeable on the topic that I really wanted. And then I got recommended uh, CJ Kilmer, who runs the Dangerous History Podcast. And I was like, oh, this dude's the man. So without further ado, here is CJ Kilmer for the Dangerous History Podcast. How are you, sir? Very good. Very happy to be here. When I heard you wanted someone uh, to talk shit about Woodrow Wilson, I was like, I got this. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what I needed. Um, so obviously, as you know, you know, uh, it's 2022 and everybody's like, you know, Trump's the worst president ever. Obama's the worst president ever. Biden's the worst president ever. When in reality, they're all nothing <laughs> compared to this guy who started the, the, the downfall of what I like to say, uh, America as, as we know it. Because I'll say this bit and I'll, I'll leave you to it. I remember seeing a chart about like American prosperity and it was like 1916 to 1917. It was just like up, 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 up. And then like 1917, 1918 hit and it was like down, 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 down. So ever since this guy in, we just went down hell in a handbasket. Why? Yeah. Well, you know, any president who starts World War III in the era of nukes <laughs> will instantly overtake Woodrow Wilson as the worst ever. <laughs> that so. is true. You know, yeah, if if the current uh, uh, corpse in chief does actually <laughs> succeed in what seems to be his goal of simultaneously starting World War Three with Russia and China, um, then he'll he'll suddenly bump Woodrow Wilson out of the top spot. But until then, yeah, <laughs> he, he's the worst when you look at both uh, the damage he did to this country, but also to the world. I mean, right. um, you know, George W. Bush did a hell of a lot of damage to the world, but uh Woodrow Wilson makes him look like an amateur in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, and and the other thing is, you know, a fair number of well-read libertarians, they know a lot of the kind of big picture reasons why uh, people who think the way we ought to, we do ought to hate Woodrow Wilson. Right. But, you know, they, they know like the Federal Reserve Act was passed under his, his watch. Um, the 16th Amendment, which gave us the income tax, passed mm -hmm. on his watch. But they might not know, like, there's a lot of other reasons to hate Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> and in this, this series that I've actually been been working on it for years at this point and i've done up through part nine i'm currently working on part 10 and i think it'll probably go roughly 15 parts by the time i'm done crazy. and um, some of these episodes are like multiple hours you know just one episode and I, I wanted to go like deep dive like yeah you know there's these big picture reasons to hate him and go through all of like the implications and legacies of that right because <clears throat> just his his decision to take the u.s into world war one caused 
over a century worth of negative ripple effects down through time. Um, you know, you could you could make a strong case that the way World War One ended is basically what gives you World War Two. Almost makes mm-hmm. World War Two inevitable, in my opinion. Right. And also that World War One and the way the U.S. got into it and how the U.S. intervened into it and altered uh, the outcome of the war, really, in a lot of ways, um, you know, gave you the Bolshevik Revolution being successful in in Russia, gave you the first communist state in practice, you know. Um, and and so there, there's just so many negative repercussions to the U.S. getting into World War One. So um, I'll I'll start at sort of like early in the guy's life because I I covered his life even before the presidency. I, okay. I'm calling it you know Wilson's life and career because he was a career academic, which mm. uh, I was up until about a month ago when I I walked away from formal academia. Um, I taught college history for 16 years Damn. and uh, recently quit to do this and stuff like this full time. So I know can academia I, very well. Can I ask, is it because it's a progressive shit show? Oh, that's part of it. There were other reasons <laughs> too, you know, but, yeah. but definitely. And, you know, at the college I was at, it wasn't so bad. I was basically at like a slightly upgraded community college. Okay. And, you know, the, all those, the, like the worst aspects of the insane wokeism and whatever, they, they were a bit slower to come to a school like that. Um, but, you know, okay. I definitely saw some trends I didn't like. And just in general, even setting aside like the current, you know, woke madness, um, just the way academia is structured. And this actually goes back to Woodrow Wilson's time as an academic, uh, that his his time period when he was in academia, which was like from the 1880s until the early 1910s, is the period where where academia as we know it really came to be. And so things like the Ph.D. system and like the rigid um, separation of different disciplines, you know, whereas before the disciplines were a little bit blurry, like you would have a professor that might teach history and economics and political science. Well, things started to get very you know, rigidly defined and all that. Um, and then also the, the progressive takeover of academia really started in Woodrow Wilson's era. He was he was a, one of the big players in it, but there were others. And um, this is something I actually go over in some of the earlier episodes that the American concept of of academia that comes in around the turn of the last century, it, in many ways, it's plagiarized from Prussia and later from Germany. This whole idea of, of like the right. PhD system and, okay. you know, universities that are very closely tied to the state and that um, are, are in a way kind of very ideologically conformist. Um, so when, when people talk about like, oh, you know, progr- this, this is usually like blue, blue-pilled boomer cons will we'll sort of have this idea um, that they apply to, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard somebody like Michael Malice talk about this, um, where, where they'll be like, oh, you know, the news up until like a decade or two ago was super fair and not ideological and whatever. It's like, no, the news was always very, right. very ideological. It's just becoming yeah. more obvious now, right? Right. Ma- Malice state- is big on that. Yeah. He's always, he's yeah, always yeah. pointing out like, he's like, no, he's like, it's always been corrupt. It's always been like, brainwashing you. It, right. It, was, it wasn't so much in your face as today with just blatant, like, you know, yeah, those fires yeah. behind CNN, the like peaceful protest. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> yeah, like, stuff like yeah. that. It's, it's like lying to you now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, guys like, Walt, like uh, Walter Cronkite, uh, they were just better at like pretending they right. were being fair and balanced or whatever. And, and then, of course, the other thing is, you know, before the Internet, you were you didn't have very many alternative sources of information. And so that that as well. But same thing with academia, where some people think like, oh, no, it was only, you know, pick your date 20 years ago or maybe in the 1960s or whatever that academia got taken over by leftists. It's like, 
no academia as we know it was created right. by progressives right. um, and, and if you you look back into the origin of all the academic professional associations uh, like the american historical association the american political science association uh, the american economics association these were all founded between like the 1880s and the 1910s and they were all founded by ideological progressives in each discipline and right. with explicitly ideological like rationales. So, so Woodrow Wilson was uh, at one point a president of the American Political Science Association. Um, so anyway, he's okay. a he's a career academic. Uh, he's still the only president who who had a PhD. Which, you know, connect whatever dots you want. Uh, <laughs> only president with a PhD, sure. strong case, worst president ever so far. Um, <laughs> right. You know, maybe we shouldn't have any more PhD presidents. And well, you know, like I, higher... I never got a PhD, so I can say that. <laughs> it's like it's like the higher you go in 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 that world, it's like the douchier you get. It's like it's like the more like uh, you lose touch from like basic reality. I feel almost. Uh, and there's also another thing I heard about um, in academia. It's like that's the only pretty much like career where test taking could get you to like top. Like it's it's like it's it's like they just care about like uh, applying stuff to test or paper. Then it's not about so much like real world, uh, real world uh, applicability. It's like your uh, job as a professor or whatever like that. But like just take this test, or whatever, and like be around your cohorts and like you get up the ranks that way. But like no real, like you don't need to do anything. <laughs> like no yeah, talent. yeah, yeah. When when you get into the higher levels, when you're you know like a professor at a fancy university or something like that which i never was um <laughs> when, when you're at that level a lot of it has to do with your publishing so just right. okay. as long as you can say like right. oh i published this book and oh i published this journal or this article in this fancy you know journal in my discipline or whatever as long as you can do that periodically and you know it, it is a it is a guild system and it is a system that just has built into it it's it's not like anyone's conscience a uh, conscious conspiracy it's just sort of built into the way it works that um, kind of like with Hollywood in a way where ideological conformity just tends to get you more jobs and more opportunities and promoted. Right. Whereas being a contrarian, you're just not as likely to get, you know, moved up the, moved up the ladder in various ways. So anyway, Wilson was an early uh, pioneer of all that stuff in a lot <laughs> yeah. of ways. Um, he, he spent uh, roughly two decades as a, as a professor um, after getting his PhD at Johns Hopkins university and um, he had gone to his undergraduate at Princeton University. And so after teaching at a few different places, he landed a job at Princeton University where he taught for roughly a couple of decades. And then he eventually became the president of Princeton University and held that job for, I think, eight, nine years, something like that. And um, it was when he was president of Princeton University that he first started to kind of cultivate a lot of friendships with the American power elite at the time, uh, because... When you're president of a fancy college or university, it's a very political job in a way uh, because you're really, in a lot of those cases, like the big fancy universities, the most important job of the president of that university is fundraising. And so a president of a school like Princeton spends a huge amount of their time with stuff that is not academic at all, spends a huge amount of their time just soliciting donations from wealthy alumni and corporate foundations and wealthy individuals and whatever to whatever, add a new science lab, upgrade the, uh, the, the rowing crew uh, pond, you know, whatever it might be. And so as president of Princeton for almost a decade, that's when Wilson, he already had some powerful friends he had made along the way, but um, you know, he, he's now he's rubbing elbows with people like JP Morgan and um, Andrew Carnegie and, and other guys who are almost as rich, but less famous. And he had always been a Democrat. He was born and raised in the South, although he lived most of his adult life in the North. And he was always just sort of a Democrat, just, you know, from being born in the South, you know, around the time of the Civil War. 
and he got courted by um, some powerful kind of behind the scenes string pullers in the Democratic Party who were looking for a fresh new face to run for president eventually. And Wilson seemed to fit the bill. He was a guy who um, was was known for being a pretty good like public speaker and all that. Uh, he had already you know, gotten some cred with some of the power elite by hobnobbing with them as president of Princeton. And um, they wanted somebody who seemed to have good talents for being a politician, but who was relatively new to politics because then it would be someone without a lot of baggage. And so Wilson kind of seemed to fit the bill for a lot of power players in the Democratic Party. And so around um, 1909, 1910, he got into a big argument with uh, the some members of the college's board of trustees over some s- stupid, you know, things having to do with the new graduate school and how it was going to be set up or something, and basically, long story short, he lost the fight on that, and he had already been thinking for a while and been being kind of like groomed and nudged uh, by some people in the Democratic Party to to run for office, and so he basically, when he lost this big big fight in the college, he resigned. Through you know, screw you guys, I'm taking my ball and going home. Uh, resigned. And then right after that, he's running for governor of New Jersey, which everybody knew this is not, he's not doing that to be that he's doing that so that uh, in two years in 1912, he can run for the presidency. It's one of those, like when Hillary Clinton became a Senator from New York with like, nobody's like, Oh yeah, she just wants to do that job for decades. You know, it's a springboard. Yeah. yeah everyone's like, we know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We know we, we got it. We, we understand what's going on here. You're just, you just yeah. yourself up to run something down the road later. Yeah, exactly. Or when Barack Obama got elected Senator, you know, and what was he in there for like two years or something? And then he's, yeah, the yeah. So, same and, sort and, of deal. And, of course, like anytime somebody out of nowhere comes to the forefront, you're like, well, they're prepping that guy for something big, <laughs> like Beto O'Rourke when the heat tried. I mean, he got pushed down. Right yeah. like, any, like, any guy who comes out of nowhere and it's like, it's like, you're like, come on, man. We've seen this a hundred thousand times before it's like this guy's a no one but mm-hmm. he's a puppet to you so you're gonna push this puppet forward and i guess Woodrow yeah. wilson's different it's a little different but like that's how he's now anyway yeah no no i i think I, I that that's a great point and that's actually something i used to often um tell my students when i was teaching uh when i would cover certain candidates and one of them would be woodrow wilson and i would also compare him to um to jimmy carter and to barack obama in that regard i would i would say look whenever you see someone who like really fast comes from, you know, nowhere, nowhere. Yeah. Um, either, either isn't in politics at all, or he is, but he's something very obscure and like, boom, next thing you know, uh, he's got a major party nomination for president. I would tell them like, that's a red flag because that's yeah. not normal. The normal <laughs> right. thing is like, you know, a John McCain or a Bob Dole or somebody like that. Who's like, you know, been around forever. Yeah, go um, commit war crimes like a real person, like a real politician, and come on hey, back and run for president. Yeah, yeah go go prove yourself. Go serve, you know, big pharma and Wall Street and the military industrial complex. Um, so he became governor of New Jersey, a job which he would only hold for two years before running for president. That was his only elected office before becoming president. And um, I actually did an episode just on that because it often gets overlooked in a lot of coverage of Woodrow Wilson, his his time as governor, but I found it pretty interesting because you can actually find he's doing a lot of the same things he later does as president um, in terms of his political strategies and in terms of his ideology. He like real quick shoved through a bunch of progressive uh, wish list reforms in a hurry mm. as governor of New Jersey. Um, that's the same thing he did with pre- with the presidency. If you look at his presidency, most of his big legislative wins were in the first two years. Uh, and then he kind of like a little bit ran out of steam after that. Uh, that's sort of what happened to him as governor of New Jersey. Now in that job, he was already looking to run for president after two years. So it didn't really, you know, catch up to him. But um, 
just one little interesting thing I'll, I'll mention that I that I dug up that I don't think very many people, um, even who have who have studied Woodrow Wilson a fair amount, know about. Uh, like most progressives of that time period, he was a supporter of the idea of eugenics. And um, it wasn't like his centerpiece, you know, project. Right. He wasn't, you know, other progressives were much more obsessed with it. But, you know, pretty much every leading progressive of back then, including uh, progressive Republican Teddy Roosevelt, as well as, as Woodrow Wilson, at least to some degree, supported the idea of eugenics. And um, eugenics was very much it was it was it came out of the mind of progressives. Right. And he actually when he was governor of New Jersey, he he got the legislature to pass and he signed into law. Uh, a eugenics act that um, I forget the exact details, but it was one of these, a lot of U S states were passing them in the early 20th century. And it was one of these that like gave the state all kinds of new powers to like, just declare somebody unfit and sterilize them, uh, you know, whether they consented to it or not. And would like, you know, set up a special state board that would just decide, you know, who gets sterilized. And um, you know, not only did I, did I dig up that, and, and that's by the way, if you read most biographies of Woodrow Wilson, are written by people who at least mostly like him, which is typical of, of a lot of presidents. You know, that, right. that's very like the most people who write biographies of Teddy Roosevelt. They're at least mostly positive towards Teddy Roosevelt. Right. And so a lot of these sorts of things get left out. The The normal establishment take on, on Woodrow Wilson is he's mostly great, um, except he failed to get the U.S. to ratify the the um, Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One. And that was a horrible disaster because they believe that that's what caused World War Two to happen. I, I don't. I don't think it really mattered whether the U.S. ratified that treaty or not. Yeah, of um, course. I mean, again, when you have like people starving to death, like in Germany, like you know the bread lines and all that stuff, right? It's a real, it's a real thing. And, and they're like, yeah, Hitler ran off that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, <laughs> he the, the, ran off that platform. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the the establishment take is, well, if the U.S. would have ratified that treaty, then it would have also joined the League of Nations, and somehow magically that would have made the League of Nations actually effective at preventing World War II. Which R right, I, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I, but but this is written by you know modern day establishment hacks who basically love the United Nations, and so mm -hmm. you know they they need to then say, well, you know, the only reason that the League of Nations didn't prevent World War II was just because America was too stupid and isolationist to join it, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and setting that aside on the issue of racism, um, you know, I, I absolutely think Woodrow Wilson was a racist. Right. Uh, and actually, the next episode I'm going to make in the series is just going to be all about him and, and the issue of race, uh, because it's it's he's definitely a racist, but it's more complicated than a lot of people think. A lot of people think, well, you know, he's a southerner born around the time of the Civil War. So, like, he's racist. Well, if you look into Woodrow Wilson's racism, it's not the racism of like a poor Appalachian you know, redneck or, or like a, you know, a rural Klansman or whatever. It's yeah, he's not dropping hard R's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not very often. Although, although right, supposedly yeah. in, in private, he, he liked to tell, like to tell some good end bomb jokes, but, um, <laughs> but, but his, his racism is much more of this Ivy league educated genteel racism, you know, um, right. which in a way is actually, I think more, more dangerous and, and more scary it's it's the it's the pseudoscientific racism behind something like eugenics which is different than just like the you know just kind of bigotry of some some redneck or something right um but anyway so when he not only did he did he sign into law a eugenics bill in new jersey during his brief time as governor there a law that by the way was later thrown out by the new jersey supreme court uh, for being unconstitutional. Um, of course. But uh, yeah, thankfully, as far as I know, nobody was ever sterilized under that bill, although That's in some good. other states, <laughs> yeah, in, in some other states where those bills were passed and were not, you know, thrown out by, by courts, people were sterilized. Um, it, it is kind of scary, though, to think like that was a thing. 
and, and then uh like right now that could be a thing like like they're still pat like they talk about crazy shit all the time like, like mm-hmm. maybe not sterilization but like you know let's take away guns let's fucking do this let's do that it's like this right. is all bad <laughs> and like it yeah. doesn't it, it never goes away like it just because it was a hundred years ago they're still trying crazy shit a hundred years later like it doesn't fucking matter <laughs> yeah yeah and you know Maybe it's not like race-based eugenics, but look at what happened in this country and then also to a much, much greater degree in places like Canada and Australia in regard to all the COVID nonsense. uh, Freezing bank accounts. I mean, yeah, if if you can, if you won't take this vaccine that doesn't even do what a vaccine is supposed to do, um, then we can basically take away most of your like basic fundamental rights, like your right Mm -hmm. to travel, your right to go to work, like all these, it's just, it's crazy. Um, but but w- one thing I, I can't help but mention, and I was kind of proud of myself. I dug this up. This is mentioned nowhere in any of the many books okay. of, on Woodrow Wilson that I've read. Um, I only came across it because I happened to be, while I was doing some Woodrow Wilson reading, simultaneously I was reading some books that were specifically about eugenics, you know, like 100 years ago eugenics. Right. And, um, and, and somewhere in there I found a mention that when um, when Wilson was governor of New Jersey – his sort of like point man, the guy who who basically drafted his eugenics bill for him was a guy that at the time was working at some sort of New Jersey state mental health asylum or whatever. Um, a guy born in, in Europe, I think at the time born in the Austrian Empire. And um, his name was Edwin Katzen Ellenbogen. And he moved to the Ooh, United States. Shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, you know, from probably what today would have been like Czechoslovakia or something like that right. back then was part of the Austrian empire. And, um, he, he was born there, became some sort of like a, a doctor of psychiatry or something. Um, huge proponent of eugenics. That was his thing. Moved to America for a while, happened to be working at, at this New Jersey facility and was Wilson's guy writing his eugenics bill for him. Right now, sometime after that, um, like I think in the 1920s or early 30s, uh, Katz and Ellen Bogan moves back to Europe um, right around the time the Nazis take over places like Germany and Austria. And uh, Katz and Ellen Bogan was at least part Jewish. And he got um, he got arrested by the Nazis, thrown into one of the one of the camps. I think it was Buchenwald, but it, it might have been one of the other. I forget which one it was. I think it was Buchenwald. And so he's in the Nazis camp, um, you know, one of their one of their camps for Jews. But when the Nazis found out he was an expert in eugenics, they basically hired him. And so he was in the camp. He was a prisoner, but he was also like collaborating with the Nazis on some stuff. And so he was getting treated better than the other. Dude, he's like the dude in Star Wars who built the Death Star. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like we're going to we're going to you're not a prisoner, but you're a prisoner. (laughs) Like, yeah yeah i mean he, he was still he was still in the camp but like you know he got he got better treatment i'm sure he got a better you know room or whatever um right. because he was actually assisting the nazis in the camp with some of their like horrific experiments and crap having to do with eugenics and right. i i was not able to track down all the details of what exactly it was he was specifically doing there but um i, I did see mentions that the other prisoners hated and feared him and saw him as, you know, obviously like a, like a traitor uh, to them. And then also whatever it was he was involved with in that prison at the end of world war two, when that, that camp was liberated, uh, Katzen Ellenbogen was actually arrested and tried for crimes against humanity 
and convicted. Uh, he wasn't executed, but he got he got thrown in prison for I think the rest of his life or close to it. So now, just just zoom out for a second and think about this: the guy who wrote Woodrow Wilson's eugenics law when he was governor of New Jersey later showed up during World War II, helping the Nazis uh, carry yeah. out experiments, war crimes in, in one of the death camps <laughs> that were bad enough. He got convicted of crimes against humanity, like. If, if that doesn't put Woodrow Wilson yeah. in a new light, like, yeah, this guy wasn't his best friend or whatever like that. But still, the fact that this guy was his advisor on eugenics. Um, yeah, no, that's like me writing a book about respecting women and then getting like Jeffrey Dahmer or not Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, he's better. Like the Green River Killer to get like, a, you know, like, like yeah. you want to write a chapter in this about respecting women? Like, you know, how, what do you think about it? He's like, I don't know. I murdered them. I'm like, all right, cool. Write it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's psychotic. It's like. And, and the fact that that doesn't get brought up more, I never heard of that. I never heard of that, like, this right, not right hand man, but like his number one legislative guy for the UK. He's like, yeah. he's doing fucking uh, Nazi experiments and shit. That's yeah, later working for the Nazis. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I've read probably at least 10 different biographies on Woodrow Wilson. I never saw this guy mentioned in any of them. And I can't. I can't believe that all these different, you know, these, these people that wrote like 700 page books about Woodrow Wilson and did years of research for it. I can't believe that none of them ever came across that little tidbit, you know, um, that, the, that the guy who wrote his eugenics bill later showed up working for the Nazis. Um, right. I, I can't believe that none of them ever came across this, which begs Wild. the question, why is it not mentioned in any of these books? And right. again, the only reason I came across it was because I was reading books specifically about eugenics, not about Woodrow Wilson. So anyway, Interesting. um, so, so then after, uh, after being governor of New Jersey for two years, he gets the Democratic Party's nomination for president. Um, he ends up winning basically because of a fluke. And I did a whole episode on on his first election to the presidency, the 1912 election, which was a weird one. It was a legit three-way race where like all three candidates of the major parties of the time actually mattered. So what happened was in the Republican Party, you had incumbent president uh, Taft and then Teddy Roosevelt came out of retirement to challenge him for the nomination. So think about this. It's like you've got a still popular ex-president. This is back before they were limited to two terms, right? So, you know, TR had already done two terms, but he still could run for more. He right. initially, after two terms, he stepped down. Taft got the Republican nomination, became president. Um, but for, for a variety of reasons I won't get into here for time, T uh, TR became uh, very, very pissed off at Taft. And so he comes out of retirement to try and steal the Republican nomination away from the incumbent Taft. Uh, he ultimately fails to do it at the convention, but he had enough of a following within the Republican Party that when he when he lost the, the nomination, a lot of them were like, well, we're not going with Taft. TR is still our guy. And so they basically start this um, party like out of nothing called the progressive party as, as a third party okay. just for Teddy Roosevelt to still be able to run for president. Right. And it makes a way bigger splash than a brand new party usually does partly because they're running a recent still popular ex president. Right. But also this is something that doesn't get talked about as much. A lot of big corporate money uh, went into the progressive party in 1912, including at least one partner of JP Morgan donated a huge amount of money to it. Uh, so it ends up being a three-way race between Taft, the Republican, Teddy Roosevelt running as the progressive party guy, and then Woodrow Wilson as the Democrat. Wilson wins the presidency because he wins the Electoral College. He only won like, um, I, I think, just over 40% of the vote, something like that. He, he won of the popular vote. Uh, but because, you know, what would normally be the Republican vote was split between Taft and Teddy Roosevelt, 
then that allowed Wilson to win enough states that um, he won the Electoral College and won the presidency. Okay. So he got elected president with like, you know, almost um, what, almost three out of five Americans having voted for somebody else. So, wow. Um, got that, got that in common with Lincoln. Um, <laughs> right. So, so he comes in and he does what he did in New Jersey, which is come out of the gate. He was very skillful at um, using rhetoric and using the press to get legislators to pass what he wanted to pass. He had done it effectively. I'll, I'll say this. He's a pretty effective president. Now, I think most of the things he's doing are bad, but in terms of like, here's the things I want to do and then getting them done pretty quickly, he's pretty good at it. Like he, he right. could teach, you know, Trump a few things about, um, you know, actually <laughs> yeah. getting done some of the stuff you say you want to do. Um, so his first year as president, you get a whole bunch of different things passed. A lot of them were things that were not just his projects, but were like on the progressive wish list for years before this. Um, and probably would have been passed by somebody around that time period, if not Wilson. But um, you get, the, of course, the Federal Reserve Act passed in 1913. Um, you also get the 16th Amendment, which had been in the works for a long time and had the support of most progressives, uh, as well as most populists, which was another faction back then that's, mm. A little bit different from the progressives. They, they have some overlap, but they're kind of their own thing. But one of the things they had in common is they both favored an income tax. Right. Um, so they get that passed. And, um, you know, a few things I'll say about, about the income tax. One is sometimes people, when they talk to me about Woodrow Wilson, they'll say, well, is there anything Wilson did that, that you like or that you agree with? And I'll usually say the only thing I can think of is he was pretty good on the issue of the tariff that before he, he became president, U.S. tariffs were very high, and he did believe in lowering them, and he did get them lowered pretty substantially. So great, okay. except even with that one thing that I that I agree with, uh, he he very much wanted to and did replace all the money the government lost by lowering the tariff by jack by putting in the income tax. So in my mind, as much as I'm not a fan of high protective tariffs. Right. That's less bad as a way for the government to take your money than the income tax, which, of course, has all these other things like it's intrusive. They can now inspect all of your you know, personal financial uh, yeah. I mean, history. The, the Venmo and, you know. thing is going on right now. <laughs> it's yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, a tariff, as much as that might be onerous, it makes stuff more expensive. But like it's not invading people's privacy. It's just something that's right. collected, you know, by the port authorities and, and the customs officials and whatever. Right. Uh, so, yeah, even the one thing he's good on, he was, you know, wanted to replace it with something worse. Uh, and did um, also the <laughs> 1913. Yeah. Oh, oh, another thing I'll say about the income tax is they um, the way that the populists and progressives sold the income tax to the mm. American people is they said, look, the way we're going to set this thing up, um, because the amendment only says that the Congress can pass an income tax. It doesn't set any of the details of the rates and who it applies to. So that that would require like an actual just piece of legislation, a regular law of Congress to say, all right. Here's the the different rates, and here's how much you know. If you make this much, you pay this, and if you make that much, this is your rate. So um, that that's been changed countless times since the right. amendment was passed. So the way they sold it to the American people is they said, "Look, we promise that the way we're going to set this income tax up, no one's going to pay anything unless you're like the richest two percent of Americans, and even those guys are only going to be paying a couple percent." You know, and, you know, most 
middle and working class Americans were like, all right, fine. You want to tax JP Morgan a couple percent and then I get to buy cheaper stuff at the store. Okay. That sounds like a good deal. And um, the original, the first income tax act they passed pretty much did stick to that. It, it only applied to the richest few percent of Americans. Vast majority of Americans didn't have to pay anything under it. And even the rich had to only pay a couple percent. And so people were like, yeah, this ain't so bad, you know? Um, and then what happened? Well, long comes world war one and they started even before the u.s was in world war one in the name of preparedness um to jack up the income tax rates and then of course once the u.s officially got in the war they jack income tax rates up through the roof so it's a classic case of you know give them an inch you take a mile right where they go oh yeah no don't worry we're only going to tax a few americans and then even they're only going to pay a couple percent but then once that amendment's on the books all it takes is a simple act of Congress to jack the rates up whenever they feel like it. Right. And so by the end of World War One, you know, most Americans had to pay something and and all of the rates had been jacked way up from from what they were to begin with. Um, so that's another another knock on Woodrow Wilson. Uh, you also get passed under his watch. And again, he wasn't this was another thing that was in the works for years, but he certainly was was on board with it as he was with the income tax is the 17th Amendment. That's the one that makes um, U.S. senators directly elected by voters of their state. Uh, okay. Before that amendment, U.S. senators were actually not directly elected by voters from their state. They were elected b- by their state legislatures. So they were only uh, indirectly elected. So in other words, before the 17th Amendment, you know, I'm from Florida. Uh, if it was time for Florida to pick one of its senators, the way the Constitution l- originally set things up, uh, the people of Florida, the voters of Florida would not go directly vote on their senator. Instead, the people of Florida would go vote for their you know state legislators and then those guys would when they met the next january they would have a special session where they would have a vote and decide who to send to washington as one of florida senators and um you know the knock on that from kind of a libertarian perspective it's really more from a decentralist perspective which is when you do that senators no longer before the the 16th the 17th amendment sorry was passed the senate was sort of like the un of the states meaning the states were represented there as states because those guys were picked by their state government, not by the voters. So it was less democratic, which, you know, we know more democratic doesn't always mean better. Sometimes less democratic is better. It kind of depends on what gives you, you know, the better result. Um, But it, it, it means that the states were kind of cut out of the loop in Washington. So, you know, the way I've heard it described is like, you know, the, the, the UK has their embassy in Washington, Russia's got its embassy in Washington. Germany's got its embassy in Washington. You know who doesn't really have an an ambassador in Washington? Florida, you know, <laughs> right? New York, California, <laughs> right? Um, because the the Senate is no longer that. The Senate is just another you know democratically elected uh, uh, thing, right? So so there's that. And then of course the big thing is World War One starts in 1914. Uh, Woodrow Wilson initially says, I, I think his instincts were originally good which his original instincts were the U S shouldn't get involved. This is a European thing, which is what most Americans thought too, at the time. And that was the popular right. move. Right. I, I remember always hearing about that too, of everybody being like, uh, I know some, obviously war is a money-making economy. We all know that. And obviously politicians want fucking war. And I remember the public was like, Oh, we don't give a fuck what happens in Europe. 
We don't give a shit if Austria collapses into itself or Germany. Who gives a fuck? And yeah, yeah. Right, who, they were right back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Who who cares if you know if Germany kicks the crap out of France or if France and Britain kick the crap yeah. crap out of Germany? Like, what does that matter to a Kansas farm boy? You know, right. what what does that matter to a, to an Idaho rancher? Nothing. Um, and yeah, basically, you know, I really wish we had scientific polling data from back then. It would be really interesting to look at, but we don't. But the best sense that you get from looking at what you can is that like the vast majority of kind of regular middle and working class Americans wanted nothing to do with World War One, Absolutely nothing. And, you know, a lot of Americans at the time were still like recent European immigrants. And, and a right. lot of them had left those countries to get away from constant wars and imperialism, all this stuff. You know, they they left countries like Germany uh, and Ireland and Italy and Russia and whatever to you know, basically get away from living under a government that's constantly getting the, getting them into wars and drafting them to fight their wars and making them uh, pay, uh, to, you know, for the czar's war, for the, the king of Prussia's wars or whatever. And so now they're in America and they kind of were, were under the opinion that, well, this is a country where that government doesn't get into stupid wars that have nothing to do with us regular folks. And then next thing you know, that's exactly what they're doing. And so, you know, his original stance was, we're going to stay out of World War One. Is very popular, but here's the thing: the American elite were almost all totally pro-British for a variety of reasons. Some of it's financial, some of it's cultural, some of it's you know family ties and things to the old country. Um, you know, the the American elite were overwhelmingly uh, Anglo-Saxon wasp types, yeah, and so they were always in their hearts pro-British and wanted America to get into the war. They saw America as an Anglo-Saxon country in their mind. And right. they saw it as, and a lot of British guys of the elites at the time felt the same way in reverse about America that, Oh, if only the two great, Oh, the American revolution was a tragic mistake. You know, if only the two great Anglo-Saxon nations of America and the British empire could, you know, make friends again, uh, this would be great. And there, there's, there's this whole racialist ideology behind this called Anglo-Saxonism where they, they thought basically that Anglo-Saxons were the master race and whatever. Um, and, and again, there were elite guys in Britain and elite guys in America that believed this. So they wanted in on the war, you know, guys like JP Morgan wanted in on the war, both to make money and because they were Anglophiles. And, um, and in addition to that, almost everybody in Wilson's cabinet was super pro-British. So they're mm. constantly nudging him to be pro-British and um, didn't take long until Wilson's being very double standard in his approach to the different sides of the war, even while he's saying America's neutral. So, you know, um, the, the, the British actually started, you, you hear a lot in America about the German U-boat blockade during world war one and how, Oh, this yeah. broke all the rules of warfare and it's evil and whatever. And it's like, yeah, there's some truth to that, that it did kind of break the, the previous rules of naval warfare. But the truth is that the British started breaking the rules of warfare on the seas first. And they they imposed at the very start of the war with Germany, they imposed a total starvation blockade on Germany that kept out everything, including things like food and medicine. And so over the course of World War One, hundreds of thousands of German uh, civilians were, were dying of malnutrition and whatever. But in America, people weren't hearing about it. They had no idea what was happening. Um, and the Germans only retaliated with the U-boat blockade after the British had already been imposing a total starvation blockade on them first. And the Germans didn't have as powerful of a, of a surface Navy as the British. So the only way they could fight back, you know, fight fire with fire was to use the submarines. And so the American press, which was largely dominated by, by British interests at the time, 
Uh, and I, I recently did a whole episode about British propaganda in the U.S. during World War One. It's like five hours long if anyone's interested. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like literally the longest podcast episode I've ever made. Um, most people don't know that the British government ran for three years. Right, World War One started in the middle of 1914. America doesn't officially get in until the spring of 1917. So for almost three years, the war is going on, but America is officially neutral. Right. Um, but during those three years, the British government were running a gigantic propaganda operation inside the United States that was controlling most American media. And I go through it in excruciating detail in that, that hmm, huge five hour episode. Yeah. I, I don't think there's, yeah, yeah, I don't I think that. there's, there, I don't think there's one American in a thousand who knows this even happened, even though it's no, been, no a lot idea. of it's been exposed. I, no, a lot of it's say, been exposed for like nine guy, years. But like you are. And like, I, I it's, it's just one of those things. Like I, I consider myself like a, a pretty good history buff. You know, like I, I read up on stuff and you're somebody who's like super obviously knowledgeable about that. And like, I've never heard of any of that. What you just said that was very much never like, it's, it's kind of hard to find <laughs> like if, I, I, if, uh, from the surface level stuff. Like you got to like really dive deep into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. A lot of this stuff has been exposed for 80 90 100 years i mean a lot of stuff a lot of this stuff actually came out pretty soon after the war ended believe it or not but just mm. nobody nobody really you know talked about it and um i don't even think most american historians who who focus on world war one even know about it it's just they, they, they have no idea um but it's all it's all there it's not you know it's, it's conspiracy fact not conspiracy theory right <laughs> yeah. so so that that's going on the british are running propaganda in the u.s and and wilson is um always even while he's saying oh we're neutral we're going to stay out of this uh he's always kind of favoring the ally side and especially the british over the germans in various ways um always kind of like double standards you know so the british do their illegal blockade of germany and wilson is sort of like hey guys come on <laughs> you're not supposed to do those sorts of things right the british are basically like yeah well we're gonna do it so what are you gonna do and, and we, yeah, we're just like, listening to like i tried hey yeah, i asked yeah. him and they said no yeah. i don't know what to do yeah <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it's, it's very much you know half-ass kind of token protest right. like oh well whereas when the germans <laughs> do their blockade it's more like hey you evil sons of bitches you are enemies of civilization with your barbaric right. blockade. You better knock that shit off. You know, it's like just a completely double standard, right? It's, you know, we see that so often, right? In the way, so much. you know, if, if, if Iran persecutes some dissidents or, or Russia persecutes some dissidents, we're like, you evil, monstrous, barbarian sons of bitches. But if, I don't know, Saudi Arabia decapitates <laughs> a bunch of dissidents, we're like, yeah, well, you know what? We have to, they have a different culture than us, and we have to right. respect well, I mean, their, yeah, you know. Of course. It's, yeah, and that's why it's also funny. It's like all these, a lot of progressives are like, uh, you know, they're like, don't, like, Islam, this Islam, it's like, well, you guys don't care about them just throwing gay people off roofs. <laughs> so why don't we talk about that? It's like, it's like they pick, everyone picks and choose what the fuck they want to use. Yeah. No one yeah. ever wants to be fully honest. It's very annoying. Yeah, yeah. They get very offended when the Islamic, you know, fundamentalist government in Iran, uh, persecutes people, but they don't seem to care nearly as much when the Islamic fundamentalist government in Saudi Arabia does it, you know? Right. Um, and I mean, you can make a strong case on that, that like as bad as the Iranian government is, I think there's a good case to be made. The Saudi government is even more oppressive as a, just a, you know, fundamentalist theocracy. But, uh, anyway, so Wilson does eventually get the U S into world war one, but not until he gets reelected. Uh, he gets he gets reelected in 1916. It's a very close election, but he does get reelected. And the centerpiece of his campaign in 1916 was basically anti-war. His famously, his campaign slogan is um, he kept us out of war. 
Like if there were bumper stickers back then, that would have been the bumper sticker. He kept us out of war. Wilson, 1916, you know, and I, I, I believe that Wilson initially was sincere when he, when the war first broke out, I think he really meant it when he was like, oh, I want to stay out of this. We should be neutral. I think he meant it for a while. I don't think he meant it for very long though. Sincerely. I, I think within about a year, year and a half, he had already made the decision in his own mind. You know, of course, one of his closest advisors was uh, Edward Mandel house, the famous Colonel house who wasn't a real Colonel. And um, he was a super rich, powerful guy within the democratic party at the time. And uh, his father was actually from England, uh, moved to the U S before the civil war and became one of the richest men in Texas. Mm. And so Colonel House, quote unquote, was was always a hardcore Anglophile. He, you know, spent a lot of time vacationing back in the old country. He had all kinds of business and, and uh, you know, friendship relationships with the British elite. And uh, he's the kind of guy when when Colonel House would go visit the UK, like he would be having lunches with dukes. He might even have a meeting with the king. Like th this is how plugged in right. he was to the British elite. And he was for Wilson's presidency he was Wilson's closest advisor and super good friend until they had a falling out near the end of his presidency. Um, so like, he's probably the most important guy, like nudging Wilson to be pro British and eventually get into the war. But his whole cabinet with, with only one exception I know of was, was hardcore pro British. So he runs for reelection on an anti-war thing, basically, Hey, vote for me and I'll keep us out of the war still is, is the message. And on that message, he wins. And within five months of winning re-election on an anti-war platform, he gets America into the war. So, you know, and there's, there's even a, a, there's a, there's a quote somewhere that he supposedly told um, his, his personal secretary, who's another, another guy very close to him, uh, supposedly either right before or right after he asked Congress to declare war and get the U S into the war. He, he told his secretary something like, yeah, you know, I actually decided we needed to go to war a long time ago, but I just had to wait until like public opinion was finally <laughs> nudged enough that I could do it. You know, he's honest. <laughs> so, yeah. Behind closed doors, he's occasionally yeah, honest. You know? So, so he gets America into the war and he gives this famous speech, which like almost every president since has almost plagiarized this speech. Like if you, if you look at, you know, for example, when George W. Bush is getting ready to invade Iraq or whatever, look at what he mm. says to explain why we got to do this. It's always um, like liberation, freedom. Exactly. Uh, 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 have to change something. Uh, the, the starving death is always the same moniker. It's all this humanitarian right. shit and it's all the cover story, always. right? So famously, Wilson's speech says things like, uh, we must make the world safe for democracy. Right. And he says this, this war is all about, <laughs> yeah, this war is all about saving and protecting democracy. It's about standing up for the rights of small nations in the face of bullies and all, the, all this bullshit. And, um, you know, whether he, he deluded himself enough to believe his own, his own hype or not, I don't know. But, um, you know, cause he can't go and be like, listen, uh, JP Morgan and all the other biggest, you know, wall street banking cartels, they loaned a shit ton of money to the British and French and Russians and pretty much nothing to Germany and Austria. And here's the thing. Eh, the Germans have to lose this war. Otherwise, Wall Street doesn't get paid back. And so, sorry, but we're going to have to jack your taxes up. We're going to have to ration things in the economy. We're going to have to draft a few million of you to go fight. But hey, what do you expect? Like, JP Morgan's going to take a haircut on his portfolio? Like, that ain't happening. Right. That ain't what I'm here for, you know? <laughs> right. And you can imagine if an American president ever ever gave a, a speech that honest about why they're going to war, like, there'd be guillotines getting set up 
you know, in DC and New York City by the end well, actually, of the day. Actually, probably not, actually, because they, any, they well, just do what they want anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But, like, like but it, it, it is that thing of like, it's kind of sad that like, I still feel like we're American at heart, but like, we're not, <laughs> like, we're not the people we used to be. Like, we got so fucking cucked and bullied down and beat down over it. It's like, now we're like, can you increase my taxes? I want to give more. It's like that. Well, there's that's there's definitely a significant percentage of us who are that way. But oh yeah, I mean, but it, guys like you and me who are like, you know, fuck this, fuck this. Yeah, we're still out there, but like, unfortunately, we don't run shit, and we yeah. also there's still like, legitimately, there's still I would say, fifty percent of this country that is sadly hardcore blue pilled, like hardcore oh, yeah. blue pilled. That I, and until you start breaking that, good luck changing anything because the, the Democrats are and progressives are great at one thing infiltrating and fucking shoving out the people they don't want. They are great at that. And we fucking take, you should take a lesson from them, honestly, with that shit. Yeah. 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 Well, they're, they're very savvy. Um, they're like the neocons, except they're an even bigger group, but they're like the neocons in the sense that like, they're very slick at taking over institutions and right. like infiltrating things it. and playing the long game. Yeah. Yeah. They're so, great long con. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. 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 Uh, multi-generational. So, yes. so Wilson gets the U.S. into the war, and um, you know, there's just this giant list of terrible things that flow from that. Um, domestically, of course, you get like taxes jacked way up. You get the Federal Reserve doing all kinds of crazy stuff they hadn't done during their first few years in operation. Um, you get arguably the most heavy-handed censorship and propaganda coming directly from the government this country has ever had. Like today, yeah. the censorship and propaganda is more indirect and subtle. It's often done through like private quote unquote companies like social media companies and news companies. But in in uh, World War One, it was like direct ham-fisted, like almost Soviet or 1984 style. Uh, he sets up a propaganda bureau called the Committee on Public Information. Uh, run by a bunch of progressive propagandists like uh, the chairman, George Creel, guy who later becomes much more famous. Edward Bernays is is part of it. Um, Walter Lippmann, all these progressive like journalists and ad men and propagandists and whatever. And they crank out huge amounts of propaganda. Um, the government also does heavy handed censorship. It's during uh, Wilson's administration during World War One that we get the Sedition Act and the Espionage Act, which basically include clauses that are applied as criminalizing free speech basically the government takes those laws and says well because there's a war we can now throw you in jail for saying or writing things the government doesn't like and okay. uh, literally thousands of americans go to federal prison during the war for things they say or publish or whatever so just um, straight up anti-free speech just completely taking away the first blat amendment blatantly yeah bulldozing it not even fucking yep. close to trying to cover it up but how did they get away with that i, I mean because even i will say this I mean, yeah, social media could censor you for sure, right? But that's technically not a government institution. So, and a like, lot of okay. it's very, a lot of it's very subtle. A lot of it's like right. you know, just manipulating the algorithm and shadow banning and all these other techniques. They right. do. But yeah. an actual government organization do like I, even today, I think that would get some serious pushback. Like I don't think that would be. I think that'd be way, harder to pass now than back then. I think. Oh, I, I, I think you're right. And and here's the thing that I think happened is, I, I think because it was unpopular. A lot of that stuff made a lot of Americans disillusioned. And if you look at this country in like the 1920s and 30s, a lot of Americans, it's maybe the most sophisticated that the general public ever was in terms of being skeptical about the government and wars and, and propaganda. Um, because it's in the 20s and 30s that you get things like Smedley Butler leaves the Marine right. Corps and starts, you know, speaking out about that. And then you get things like the Nye Committee in Congress in the 30s, which actually exposed a lot of the war profiteering from World War One. 
And um, and the Americans in the 20s and 30s, you could be pretty mainstream with some of these radical anti-war sorts of opinions. And I think part of it is that that the government cracked down during World War One so like directly and obviously on things like freedom of speech that even a lot of Americans who might have been at least somewhat pro-war were like, yeah, that ain't right. Like there's there's something just not right about like locking up you know peaceful activists for giving a speech like this this doesn't seem right, and so I think the American uh, political and media elite they kind of learned their lesson, and they've never been that direct and you know mm, heavy handed right. again. Even during World War II, there was a huge amount of propaganda and censorship during World War II, but it was mostly done more kind of stealthy and quietly and they would only occasionally like directly you know arrest someone for for something like that um in world war ii most of the time it was much more subtle like you know behind the scenes stuff that didn't leave a paper trail and that wasn't obvious to the general public and so i, I think that's kind of how we get to where we are today is like world war one was like you know version 1.0 of propaganda and censorship in this country okay. and and they learned their lessons from it and they've been refining it continuously um e ever since so, um, you know, you also get unprecedented government takeovers of, of much of the economy during World War One, um, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. Uh, you get uh, the first. Um, sorry, only the second military draft in American history. The first was during during the Civil War. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this draft is in a way bigger. Um, and by, by how much do you know by how much by any chance, like thousands, millions? Like what's the uh, I think around two or three million men were drafted for okay. world war one, which um, I think in the civil war, technically most of the guys who fought in it were volunteers, quote unquote. Yeah, but yeah. in a lot of cases they were volunteers because they were trying to avoid the draft. Cause in the civil war, which I also did a giant series on a few years back <laughs> uh, in, in the civil war, most of the guys who fought in it were technically part of state volunteer regiments. And the reason why was if you, if you volunteered for one of those, you would be in a unit with like guys from your area and you would at least know some of them okay, or whatever. So you're not just like where, in the middle of fucking nowhere with random dudes. You're like, I'm going to die out here alone. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas if you didn't do that, and also there was a lot of social pressure, especially in smaller towns, like, Hey, you know, go, go volunteer to fight with your neighbors and our, 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 you know, buddies and relatives and whatever. Um, so yeah, if you got directly, directly drafted by the U S army, you would just be shoved into wherever they wanted to put you. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a technicality, but still, uh, in, in the U S keep in mind, the U S was only in world war one for like a year and a half a year, right? It was like a year, it was like 17 yeah, to 18, that was year, it. Year, year and <laughs> a half. Yeah. It's from, from early 17 to late 18. Yeah. And yet even in like a year and a half, they still did all the stuff, you know, they still criminalized free speech, drafted a few million guys. Yeah. So, um, and, and then just sort of like, you know, and I, I, I can keep going for a little bit uh, if, if you want me to, to to wrap things up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, uh, yeah. Wrap wrap it up on your own accord. <laughs> yeah. We're, okay, we're, sure. we're to the hour mark. Yeah. yeah wrap I'm, it up and we'll end it. Yeah. I, I'm old, but I'm not I'm not uh, passing out quite yet. So <laughs> so th those are just some of the negative impacts of Wilson getting America into World War One domestically. You know, police state censorship the draft take over the economy taxes jacked up also a lot of a lot of money creation to finance the war too so there's high inflation after the war um and, and you know for, for a few years at least after the war and um but but in terms of the world what happens is before the u.s got into world war one it really looks like that war was was getting ready to be something close to a draw like you know maybe a slight victory for one side or the other but probably more or less a draw you know and so it wouldn't have like radically overthrown the world kind of power balance or whatever. Okay. Um, 
and that's kind of where it was. And then, then suddenly America's about to get in and this makes Britain and France who like by early 1917, everybody who had been in world war one up till then was like ready to keel over. Um, and then, you know, the, the Germans are trying to negotiate with the British and French and the British and French are basically like, no, screw you. We're not talking. And the reason why they were, they were taking that stance was they, they knew that the U S was going to get into the war real soon. And so that basically, you know, the, you sometimes hear idiots say things like, well, you know, we had to get into World War One, Otherwise, it would have just dragged on way longer. It's like right. that's the opposite of the truth. Uh, the war probably would have ended a lot quicker and, and a lot more equitably if America just stayed the hell out of it. You know? Right. So it's always it's always like, well, we, we had we who was going to do it if we didn't do it? I don't know. They would have figured it out. <laughs> like somebody. Yeah. <laughs> does yeah. Have to be yeah. Up all the time? Yeah. If I mean, it's pretty clear to me that if there wasn't the prospect of Uncle Sam riding in and, you know, giving the allies an overwhelming victory, the British and French probably would have been much more willing to start negotiating with the Germans and maybe wrap well, things up a year more th earlier than it did. Not, not to get too far off topic, because I know we got to wrap it up soon, but even World War II, right? I mean, obviously, there's many books written, especially in Libertarian Mises Institute, written like, hey, there's a strong case to say we don't have to get involved in World War, World War II, you know? And everyone's yeah. like, well, Germany would have taken England. It's like, probably not. <laughs> they probably wouldn't have. They probably would have. They, no one could fucking capture an island. It's so hard. So yeah, they bombed the yeah. fuck out of them, but like I don't think they ever would have got past England. They never would have got here, like no fucking way. But anyway, it's a whole other thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that uh, that's another thing. I, I sometimes will put it to my students is like, look, there's you know, there obviously the Nazis were genuinely bad guys, and you know, there's an argument to be made that's legit. Yeah, that, like there's a humanitarian case to just try and stop the Nazis sure. from doing bad things. But you know that that's different than the argument that idiots make, where it's like. Well, you know, if we right. hadn't fought the Germans, they would have taken over here next. It's right, like, right, right, right. Really? You'd be speaking they, German. No, yeah. I'm speaking. I'm still speaking exactly how you're speaking right now, you idiot. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, all you got to do, take a road trip, take a road trip from Miami to Seattle to really understand how huge this country is. And then ask yourself, how many millions of German soldiers would it take to subdue just the lower 48 of the United States? Right. We have 5 and, million guns and, yeah, and, and, <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> you know? How, how many million German soldiers would, would it have taken? Where would they have gotten them from, considering most of their army was tied up fighting the Russians after 1941? Right. And you're, um, you're going 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. Supplies exactly. have to follow. Troops have to follow. Medicine, yeah. food. Get the fuck out yeah. of here. It's so yeah. Unless the Germans <laughs> invented like teleportation they'd get wiped out halfway across the atlantic by, by right. the u.s navy and and whatever so i mean the whole, the whole thing is is just silly um and it's even sillier with world, world war one but yeah. um you know there, there's there were people in the the propaganda back then was saying the same thing like, oh they're, they're coming for us next or whatever even though there was no evidence they wanted to no way that they yeah. had the capability to do it so the u.s getting in though does give the the british and french you know the the russians dropped out of the war in revolution the czar got overthrown um, the, the short version of why Woodrow Wilson deserves some of the blame for the communists ultimately taking over is when, when the czar gets overthrown, initially there's a non-communist kind of like small D democratic government that takes over and, you know, they're kind of like slightly left, but they're not, they're not wild commies or whatever. They're right. sort of almost like Western style Democrats. And, um, Wilson and the rest of the allies basically bribe and coerce that government into into keeping russia in the war which was hugely unpopular with the russian people and what yeah, <laughs> yeah what, they were getting wiped out in a million a oh, clip <laughs> yeah they, they were they were they, they had taken horrific losses in the, millions of people and um and so the the new the new they called it the provisional government of russia is like all right we're going to stay in the war 
that suddenly made them hugely unpopular with, with the masses of Russian people. And along comes the Bolsheviks. And what made the Bolsheviks popular and eventually able to take over wasn't that like Russian peasants and, and workers in factories all started reading Karl Marx and got persuaded. It was <laughs> that the, um, the, the, the main slogan was peace and bread. So the biggest thing the Bolsheviks ever did to make themselves popular was say, hey, you know, support us and we'll get this country out of World War One. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a strong case that if Wilson and, and the other allies hadn't, you know, bribed and coerced the provisional government into staying in the war, they might have stayed popular enough that the Bolsheviks, because the Bolsheviks started out as like a tiny fringe radical group, you know, right. um, and had it had had the, the provisional government gotten rushed out of the war, they would have been popular. The Bolsheviks wouldn't have had a prayer. Uh, so there's that. And then um, at the, the the treaty negotiations at the end of World War One, the allies, because of American involvement, had way more leverage than they would have had. So it's not going to be a draw. It's going to be an overwhelming victory for their side. And Wilson, his again, his initial instincts, I think, were right. His initial instincts going into the peace conference were, I don't want a lopsided peace that punishes the losers too badly. I want a fair peace. Okay. But. His other thing that he was obsessed with was this idea of creating the League of Nations. That was his baby that he was just obsessed with. He thought, as long as we get the League of Nations created, it's going to solve every other problem in the world. And so what happened was he goes into the negotiations and the leaders of Britain and France, they're like way more like sophisticated, you know, strategic politicians than Wilson was. Wilson was like a like a dumb Boy Scout. Okay. And so the leaders of Britain and France, their goal was like, we want to take Germany to the cleaners. We want to take everything we possibly can from them, punish them, you know, rub their nose and everything, take away territory from them, you know, try to destroy their economy, whatever. So Wilson comes in and he's like, Hey guys, I think we ought to do a fair peace and not treat Germany too badly. And the British and French are like, Oh yeah, well that's not how we feel. We want to take Germany for all they're worth. Wilson's like, but I don't, I don't want to do that. And the British and French basically tell him, well, Mr. President, here's the thing. If you don't let us take Germany, rake Germany over the coals, uh, we're not going to go along with your League of Nations idea. Mm. So, yeah, one or the other. Either you let us take Germany and we support the League of Nations or you don't let us, you know, rip Germany off and uh, no League of Nations. And Wilson was so obsessed with the League of Nations oh, that he was like, okay. all right, you know what? Um, he actually believed, I think, that... Uh, yeah, okay, this treaty we're making with Germany is very unfair and one-sided, but we're creating a League of Nations, and you know what? In a few years, the League of Nations will fix that treaty and make everything fair, which, of course, never happened. Um, right. So it's, you know, it's it's due to Wilson's own priorities and his own, you know, bungling and everything. Uh, I don't think he should have got America into the war at all, but if he did, you know, I think he should have stuck to his guns that the most important thing was having a fair peace because Germany gets screwed over so badly and so unfairly at the end of world war one that as you were saying you know towards the beginning of, of our discussion like man if you were trying to make an entire nation super resentful and <laughs> yeah. steaming for revenge and maybe <laughs> right. make them be willing to listen to crazy nut jobs like the nazis there you go like you couldn't do much better plus all the economic effects you know of the war reparations and the hyperinflation right. that that's it, it sparked in germany like you know if you were trying to set up a sequel to world war one you couldn't have done much better if you're trying to do it on purpose uh, as what was in the Treaty of, of Versailles. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I believe that Woodrow Wilson deserves not all the blame, but a lot of blame for how World War One ended. 
and for World War II even happening, right. and for the communists eventually taking over in Russia, and then by extension, communists taking over in other countries down the road. So he deserves at least some of the some of the blame for communism being a big thing in the world. And um, I don't think it's deliberate. Like I don't think he actually was a communist. He was a he was a progressive, not a communist. But right, um, almost you know, the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, like I like, I don't I don't think he liked the Bolsheviks. You know, but. Um, but his actions unwittingly paved the way for them, even though he didn't intend it that way. And, um, you know, he, de he deserves at least some of the blame for the cold war. And of course he deserves the blame for what he called. I did an episode. Um, I think it was part five of Woodrow Wilson. That was just all about taking apart his academic writings because this guy was in academia for like close to 30 years. And so with him, we've got a window into his brain that we don't mm. have with other presidents where, okay. you know, for 30 years he's writing and, and speaking about history and political science. And we have to assume that what he was saying during that period were like his real thoughts, you know, because he was a tenured professor. He wasn't running for office, right? right. When a politician says stuff during a campaign, you always have to treat it, you know, as a suspect. But, you know, when you're a tenured professor, just freely speaking your opinion, like that must be what you really believe at the time. Right. And so, you know, I, I did a multi-hour episode just taking apart, which was horrible because he's he's a terrible writer and he's he's just like, <laughs> he, 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 I mean, some of the quotes that I read of that, it's just ridiculous. Like he he does a, you know, giant page long paragraph and says almost nothing. You know, it's just like okay, yeah. jargon and repeating yeah, himself bullshit, yeah. and clunky. And yeah, it, it's, you know, it's not postmodern, but it's almost like the postmodernist where he like has huge amounts of word salad that just say nothing, you know. Right. Um, but But what he talked about in a lot of his writings was he believed that all human societies were evolving toward what he called modern democracy. And when you look into what he describes modern democracy as, it's basically what we live in right now. The, we are living in Woodrow Wilson's idea. We are living okay. in his idea of what he called modern democracy, which is you know a giant uh, a centralized country where it's democratic in the sense of there are elections. But Right. If you if you look into how he really thought it should run, it's what we have. Um, it's 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 not really democratic in the way most people think of democratic. It's not democratic like ancient Athens or something like that. Whether that's right, good right. or bad is a different story, but it's not right. that. So his idea is, yes, you, you have regular elections and you want as many people voting as possible. Yes, it's democratic. But he also believed he was an elitist as an Ivy League mm. academic. He also believed that regular people, <laughs> regular people aren't smart enough to really know what they should vote for. And so they need people like Woodrow Wilson. They need educated elite experts uh, to tell them what they should vote for. And then it's essentially the job of the, the voters to like rubber stamp what their enlightened expert progressive leaders tell them they should vote for. So that's that's kind of like if you when you when you when you hear like establishment, especially Democrat establishment people today talking about our democracy is in danger. That's what they mean. That's what they mean. They mean the people voting for people like us and voting the way we tell them to. Right. Um, and the, the other thing about modern democracy, as Wilson described it, that we live in and that I think is, is actually not democratic at all, is Wilson basically invented the idea of the deep state, the idea of the permanent mm. bureaucratic administrative apparatus that doesn't get affected by elections. He really invented that. I did a whole episode um, <laughs> just about yeah, I, I did a whole episode it was um it was part four of the series um just about this one article he wrote which i think is maybe the most important thing he ever wrote 
Uh, it was an article he wrote back in the 1880s when he was still pretty new to being a professor, and it was published in a major political science journal at the time, and it was just called The Study of Administration. And basically, in that article, he makes the case for the deep state. He doesn't use that word, but he makes the case for the deep state. He says, look, we need to have, and, and he, he used like Prussia and countries like that as his model. He's like, look, we need to have a permanent, what he called an administrative state, a permanent okay. bureaucratic system of people who are not elected, who are career civil service bureaucrats who serve for life and who are quote unquote experts. And they actually do most of the running of the government. And so Wilson wanted politics to be democratic in the sense of he wanted, you know, most people to be able to vote, but he wanted to insulate most of the government from the elections, you see. So whether you vote for this guy, vote for that guy, vote for this party, vote for that guy, the vast majority of what the government actually is and what the government actually does is permanent and doesn't change, right? And this is what we see, even when you get a wild card in there like Trump, so what? Most of the FBI, most of the, the you know State Department, most of the CIA, most of the Pentagon, whatever, are the same people. They're the same people who have been there in some cases for 20, 30, 40 years. And you know what? The president can replace a couple guys at the top of that organization. Doesn't matter. And you can see just how effectively Trump was completely sandbagged from doing almost anything that he wanted to do. Um, you know, that, that I mean, I'm, I'm sure you heard that like, the, the, the Pentagon wasn't even telling him the truth about how many troops we had in Syria. Right. Yeah. If, if that yeah. doesn't show you, like the who's the president doesn't really matter. And again, we are living in what Woodrow Wilson imagined in eighteen eighty seven. There there's a, a story I heard Clinton Bill Clinton tell, who again, out of all the elite scumbags, he's up there. And this was, was but this goes to prove your point. Um, I remember he uh, I heard a story where he just got elected. And I, who was the who was the CIA director at the time? Was it Petraeus? I don't, not Petraeus. It wasn't Petraeus, but it was a uh, Bush. Who the fuck was? It? <laughs> not Bush. Who the fuck was the CIA director at the time? Clinton got her. Whoever that was. Yeah, I don't. Anyone remember. in the comments, hit me up. Hit, hit throw it in there. Um, uh, he goes to him. He's like, I want to go to Area Fifty One, and he laughs in his face. He's like, No. <laughs> he's like, You don't get to go there. He's like, I'm the president. He's like, You don't get to go there. Sorry. And he's like, Oh. He's like, And that's when I realized he's like, I'm not really in charge of shit. <laughs> that's coming from Bill Clinton. Yeah. So yeah. Like, which. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it really makes me wonder, like, I, I'm agnostic about, you know, whatever Trump is or is not guilty of right now. Like, I'm I'm not a huge Trump fan, but at the same time, I don't I don't think he's this horrible Nazi or whatever. And also, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, honestly, you know, put a gun to my head. Like, I think he was the lesser evil in 2016 and in 2020. Not close. You know? <laughs> not yeah. close. So but, but I'm not, you know, mo most people who 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 are willing to say Trump isn't Hitler are then like they think he's the national messiah who really is going to make America great again. I don't believe that. But um, of course, no, it's you know, nonsense. But but to compare the Biden administration, who's like actively. Look, is, is it awesome around here? Um, is, is inflation not at all time, almost at all time high? Is is yeah. gas still at four fucking dollars? Shut the yeah. fuck up! Like it's it, it's yeah. not the same. They're not the same. You know. Yeah, and and I'm sure you you remember when when Trump, especially like early in his presidency, you know, the establishment is like, oh no, what if he recklessly provokes World War Three? And like he never did that. Not but, close. Uh, you, know, you know who is provoking World War Three is the freaking Biden administration, right? They're right. They're, they're they're the ones but, you know. But that, that's the problem. Though, China dude, and is, Russia. Is they don't like hit all again. Remember, I said before, unfortunately, half of this fucking country is still blue pilled morons. They all have Ukrainian flags in their profile right now, and they they think we should be going to war. So, like, they don't think that because they're like, well, Trump would have went to war with bullshit, but we're gonna go to war with something that really means something. It's like, 
Yeah, you got it. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah. We we, we want to make sure that uh, trans Ukrainian men can get pregnant yeah. and get abortions. You know. Um, yeah. So uh, it, it does make me wonder, like the the documents that Trump supposedly took with him to Mar-a-Lago. What was in those? Like really? Because you know the the FBI, the media, whoever else is looking at those things, they will never tell us the the whole truth on that. And so honestly, right. I wonder, like, did he bring the folder that's like the truth about the Kennedy assassination? Did he bring the documents that tell the truth about 9-11 or that tell the truth about area 51 or you know what like what what did he manage to get his hands on and there's there's so many interesting stories too like um i think i remember reading somewhere that not long before nixon got taken out politically he had been um all of a sudden like requesting documents that had to do with the kennedy assassination and even going further back like with the bay of pigs and all that yeah, Nixon, Nixon, okay. which um, Nixon was like, in some ways, he was the original Trump, like, you know, wasn't a great guy, but the establishment was hysterical about him as as just like the, the worst guy ever um, right. and, and was, you know, not a guy I'm a fan of, but but Nixon was at least trying to be kind of independent in the way Trump was. And, and the establishment, you know, if you, if you look into the details of Watergate, like Watergate was very much a political takedown and a setup. Yeah, right? of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but, yeah. but but supposedly somewhere I remember reading that. um you know, towards the latter days of when he was president, he was suddenly making requests uh, of, of like for various archive documents from years ago, like from from 10 years or more ago, having to do with like, you know, the, the Bay of Pigs early in Kennedy's presidency and the Kennedy assassination and all this stuff. And it's interesting, like, why did Nixon all of a sudden start asking for those documents, you know, when he was right. when he was getting politically taken out? Um Remember though when Trump came into office, he was like, "I'm gonna release the Kennedy shit," and then like a month later, yep. he was like, "I changed my mind. I'm actually we're gonna talk about that. <laughs> we're gonna yeah. come back and circle around to it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's that famous um, that famous uh, Bill Hicks bit where he's like, you know, what happens when you become president? Do they they bring you in? Right. Yeah. Uh, they sit you down. You, and they show you the basement. Yeah. They, yeah. They, you come in. You're like, oh, I got all these reforms I want to do and whatever. And then a whole bunch of guys bring you into a back room. Right. And they show you a film of the Kennedy assassination yeah. from an angle you've never seen before. Yep. Right. And then at the yep. end, the lights come on and they go, any questions? And the new president says, just what my agenda is. Yep. Nope. I'm good. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Uh, CJ, dude, we can end it here. That was fucking oh, man. I want to want to have you back on for a part two, <laughs> or maybe something else. Like the Civil Wars, you're so fucking fascinating to talk to, man. Like I have so much stuff I never heard of before. It's so fucking interesting. I'm sure everybody listening to and watching fucking loves you. But please tell everybody where they can find you and support you, please. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, the the show is the Dangerous History Podcast. I've been doing it for eight years. I've got uh, 230 some odd episodes, and some of them are many hours long. Um, and yeah, I've covered a whole bunch of topics over that time. I, I did American Revolution very early on. I did Civil War, um, been working on Woodrow Wilson for years and still have a ways to go on him. Um, I recently started a series. Uh, I run multiple series simultaneously, and uh, I recently started a series on British propaganda. Or sorry, um, propaganda in the U.S. during World War One. Part one was what I mentioned before, which is um, the British propaganda in the U.S., but then I'm going to do three or four more parts in that series all about American propaganda once America's in the war. All the propaganda, censorship, suppression of dissent, throwing people in jail for expressing their opinions, all that stuff. So yeah, I've got a bunch of stuff in the works. That's awesome. And I recently quit academia, my full-time teaching job that I had held nice. for 15 <laughs> years to be a full-time independent 
Dangerous Historians. So, um, yeah, wherever you consume your podcast, look up Dangerous History Podcast. Put DangerousHistoryPodcast.com in your browser. You'll get my website. Uh, and you can also support me on places like Patreon and Subscribestar and get extra episodes and bonus stuff there, too. So, yeah, thanks. Guys, if you're not, I mean, I think already, most people are already following you there in this chat. But, guys, if you're not, go follow CJ. He's a fucking man. Thank you so much, dude. That was great. I couldn't have wanted anything better than that. that was exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for having me. And, yeah, yeah. I'm down for doing it again sometime. Yeah, we have to, talking uh, about whatever topics you back. want to talk about. <laughs> We're going to run it back, dude. Like, everybody, you know where to follow me. At Adam Go follow uh, The Cult of Us. I do great Neil Wood. Comedy, no politics. You guys know. <laughs> if you're tired of this shit, go laugh over there. Uh, new episode of Cult of Us tomorrow is coming out a little day early. Other than that, everybody, peace out. This has been a blast. Thanks for listening. Find Adam on social media, Twitter and IG at Adam Nutter or Facebook and TikTok at Adam Nutter Comedy. And for podcasts and merch, check out www.droptent.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. This has been a Drop Tent Media Production.